Stephen Wolfram is is the the perhaps the most popular um, and well known uh, exponent of of that type of idea that the the universe itself is a computation. Um, it was originally put forward by two people independently. Um, the, fir the first one was a guy called, um, well, they both did it about the same time, a, a guy who's also at MIT called Edward uh, Fredkin, um, and he came up with what's called the digital philosophy. Um, and he's basically asking the question, you know, is nature an analogue thing or is it a digital thing or is it a mixture of both? Is it, you know, a hybridisation? Von Neumann was interested in that as well, um, but Von Neumann didn't really write much about that. Um, the other guy was a chap called, who again at the, around about the same time, or perhaps earlier actually, um, was a German um, inventor called Konrad Zeus who ended up inventing his own types of parallel computers that he called calculating space, um, which is the, the, the German title I've used in a couple of um, tracks of mine on some albums. Um, and um, Comrade Zeus, again, sort of independently invented serial automata and then went on to also propose that, you know, nature itself is, is based on those principles. Um, so the idea of, of, you know, nature as computation is definitely becoming a lot more widespread, um, certainly, and obviously was popularised at its height, if if you like, in some way by the film The Matrix, which was kind of proposing this idea, you know, that there's something behind everything and it's controlled in some way or computation. Um, I'm not sure whether I, I believe it or not, to be honest. Um, and I'm... I'm not in a position. I'm not. I'm not in a position to be able to. You know, I'm not mathematically well developed enough to, to attempt to try and develop it into something like that. Um, Edward Fredkin has probably done, to, to my knowledge, anyway, has done the most in terms of. He's actually written an entire book called Digital Philosophy, which you can get online, which which explains his version of digital physics. Um, and he's trying to pretty much put that forward as the new paradigm for physics. Whether they'll be successful or not, um, I don't know. I think part of the problem is is, is that um, if you can't get the general public to understand it, then it's 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 neither here nor there to most most people. I don't think. I don't. I don't even know if most people even think about those types of things on a daily basis either um but there's there was a very good um book written by a guy called gary william flake called the computational beauty of nature which sort of ties a lot of these ideas together from chaos theory uh, fractals nonlinear dynamics neural networks complex systems cellular automata uh, and sort of, uh, and computation itself um, uh, into a sort of a, again a, a book that sort of tries to show a lot of the similarities between all of these things. I mean, part of the uh, he also introduces in that as well, you know, the the notions that Kurt Gödel um, 
put forward in the mid-30s, which was this idea, well, not an idea, but the, he demonstrated that mathematics is, is not able to prove its own consistency. So there's always that as well that's permanently in the back of my mind ever since I first started getting into Godel's theorems, that there's, even though we work with mathematics and physics and all of these systems, there's something right down fundamentally deep at the bottom that is like a niggling scratch that's always saying, well, the foundations still haven't been fully laid for all of these systems. So the foundations of mathematics really are not set in stone because there are some fundamental inconsistencies which you don't get taught at school, obviously. Otherwise, everybody would just walk out. <laughs> I certainly would have. <laughs> I think they're very inspirational for artistic thought, a lot, a lot of these new ideas that are coming out. Um, and obviously, as artists, we should be both questioning all of this as well as, you know, utilising it in whatever way we see fit for our own art, um, which is which is why I, I ended up getting into, you know, algorithmic and generative art in the 80s. Technology and science are widely used to make art, but that really happens the other way around. Dave Bierston's approach to creative practice binds the three together to yield surprising results, so he accordingly describes himself as an artist-scientist. His PhD thesis on generative music and cellular automata opened up new approaches for a key unsolved problem in the CA arena as well as being the sequencer source for many of his generative experimental electronic music releases. Likewise, his Rainwire project, an environmental sonification system, is proving to be both a potential method for more accurate measurements of rainfall, as well as exquisite sound material for several of his compositions. Since 1981, either under his name, or one of his many monikers, or through his independent art science studio, Noise Lab. Dave has been actively working on experimental research-based projects, ranging from sound synthesis and electronic music to field recording and landscape-scale sound art. In this podcast, Dave Bierston talks about his Rainwire project, and how using rain as a creative medium has led him to an ongoing research that could overcome some recognized shortcomings in the field of rainfall measurements. He talks about complex systems and creative practice in science with an overview of cellular automata and its applications, including his findings on CA rule, space, self-organization, using modular synthesizers and CA sequencers.
the Rainwire uh, project um, is kind of the reason for most of this kind of trip round that I've been doing at the moment because I gave a paper and a performance on Rainwire at the Balance on Balance 2015 conference in at the Arizona State University in Phoenix. Um, it's the second of the conferences of that conference I've been to. I was also invited to do a temporary installation of Rainwire in 2013 in um, the UNESCO Biosphere in Noosa in Queensland. Um, so the Rainwire project came out of um, the early stages of the project we have, Sarah and I and a couple of other people have called the Wired Lab, um, which is a, a sort of a rural art science um, organisation. So we're interested in um, how, as contemporary artists, we can live rurally. We live on a, a farm in, in the middle of nowhere in New South Wales. How can we work with um, living in a rural rural location produce cutting edge contemporary art that's relevant in a contemporary way, not something that's just you know craft or or something like that. Um, that is you know cutting edge contemporary and seen to be that way by and, and recognised internationally as as contemporary art. Um, and we've had you know. Lots, lots of good support from the arts organisations in Australia to do that. Um, so being based rurally, we've worked with, uh, as well as developing stuff ourselves, we've worked with a number of different people. We started initially working with a guy called Alan Lamb, who's uh, known for his sort of long wire uh, recordings. Um, and the Rainwire project was something I developed from some of the long wire instruments that we initially built with Alan. Um, and now I've um, sort of developed and built my own long wire instruments. Um, part of my interest in looking at rain as a creative medium um, it sort of partly came about because Alan said to me initially, um, oh, I never, you know, that. Um, because Alan's interested in recording aeolian vibrations on long wires. That's kind of traditionally what he's been known for. Um, and I was interested in do, obviously doing my own thing with it. So I was thinking, what you know, what 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 can I do then? Um, and so with this idea that Alan was telling me that you know rain basically dampens all of the vibrations on on the wire, um, so it doesn't produce tones as such. I started quite by accident because I was out recording uh, once, ended up recording rain hitting the wire. So I thought, okay, well I'll carry on recording it and see what happens. Um, and it produced this rather interesting kind of sound world. So I ended up, rather than spending a lot of time going out recording in sort of nice weather to record tones, I ended up going out to record rain. Now, if you live rurally on a farm like we do, we're on a 300-acre farm, which is also a working farm, so we run cattle on the farm as well. Um, we have a rain gauge, and if you're a farmer, like uh, you always, you're always monitoring the rainfall. You're always interested in in how much rain there is, you know, how hard or soft that rain is, how long it goes for. Um, 
which obviously when I lived in the city, I wasn't, you know, it's, it's almost the opposite. When you live in a city, you know, you're looking out for rain for a completely different reason, which is usually to get away from it. Um, so I ended up spending a lot of my time outside in the rain and, and just looking at it, listening to it, listening to what it sounded like. Um, and I was realising that it was fulfilling a few of the things that are part of my own creative quest, which is to um, look at randomness and chaos in natural physical systems. Um, in rainfall research itself, there's a kind of deep question about whether rainfall is in quotes chaotic, which means it's uh, not random, or is it random? And the, the, the meteorologists are having a nice big sort of argument, bonfight about whether or not it's chaotic or is it random. So I thought, well, okay, that's, that's, that's piquing my interest, obviously because I'm interested in chaotic systems and random systems. So it's sort of pushing all those buttons for me straight away. Um, and secondly, it just made a really great sound. I was really interested in the sounds it made. They were quite unique. You know, if you've got a, um, a, lo a long wire stretched across the landscape, so these long wire instruments that we build are made from high tensile steel fencing wire. Uh, and they're usually anything from, say, a couple of hundred metres long to a couple of kilometres in length. So they're sort of massive, long systems going going across the landscape um, they have like incredible reverberant quality to them they're very tough because they're made out of fencing wire that you use to keep cattle in so you can literally suspend a car from them and it wouldn't wouldn't snap or anything like that so they can withstand really harsh weather conditions which we get because we're 650 meters above sea level on the sort of southwest slopes of the Great Dividing Range. So the, the weather we get there can be quite intense and, and very heavy rainfall, very heavy winds, you know, and then from that it can be completely still, absolutely nothing happening. Um, so I get a great variety of sound from these systems. So it was, yeah, just fulfilling all of these requirements for me artistically. Uh, and then I was started to realise that as I investigated a bit more about the rainfall research that there's a lot that's not known about rainfall and there's a lot that needs to be known. Um, in particular with rainfall you need to know how heavy the rain is, you know, what the rate of rainfall is, how long it, how long it lasts because these make a if you're growing crops or if you're running cattle on the land um, or if you're just collecting rainwater itself or you know we've got six dams on our farm so we need to be storing rainwater as well the type of rain and the amount of rain you get is going to make a, a big difference to your land and your livestock so for example if it's if it's quite dry or it's after a bushfire and you get very heavy rain, you're going to get a lot of erosion. So, it, 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 you know, you need to know all of these different factors about rain. And I found out that recording 
or measuring rain in the ocean is one that is a really difficult problem and the reason I found that out was because I, I found out that, that a bunch of a couple of researchers in America are looking at recording rain underwater using hydrophones so they sink a hydrophone down about two kilometers underwater and you get this sort of cone that goes up like that with about two kilometer diameter or two kilometer radius I can't remember and so they measure this sort of big circle of uh, sea surface and when it rains over the ocean or over a body of water the sound that it makes is a unique it has like a unique spectral signature and that's what these guys well they didn't actually discover it they were basically putting into effect something that was discovered at the end of the second world war which was that rain interferes with sonar so um i think it was that the americans were trying to work out why they were getting interference with sonar and they thought that the the enemy was interfering with their sonar and they found out that it wasn't the enemy it was actually whenever it rained that this unique sound would totally confuse underwater sonar and then there was this big gap of about I don't know like after the war probably about 35 40 years and then these these researchers in America were trying to sort of approach this problem of how do you record rainfall over oceans because remember that the ocean is two-thirds of the planet so two-thirds of the planet pretty much is not being accurately monitored for rainfall measurement the only way you can measure it is through satellite which is a very coarse-grained um, way of monitoring rain so they, they're looking at this issue of how can you measure rain underwater and then you know work out how to sort of better look at that. So they realised that because when rain hits hits the surface and it makes this unique sound, they could use spectral analysis um, to relate the energy profile in different frequency bands to the amount of rain that was falling over time. So not only does it give you a measure of the amount of rain but it also tells you the intensity of the rain over time because you've got very high temporal acuity with which you can monitor whereas on land you're literally using a bucket like that and it fills up and every half an hour the bucket tips out measures the amount of rain and then tips back up again so you get 30 sort of minute intervals so obviously as working with audio you've got this very high sort of resolution in terms of the way it's going to fluctuate over time which is obviously important for erosion runoff the way it impacts growing plants or building structures or anything like that uh, and for flooding as well so with that all in mind I started to think well maybe I can use my long wire recordings of rainfall to you know approach how do we better look at measuring rainfall on land? Can we get a better temporal acuity for, for measuring rainfall on land? Um, so that started in 2008. That's when I first started looking at it, you know, very informally. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've, I've now got to the point where I've kind of proved the concept that we can get a unique 
sort of spectral sound from rainfall hitting wires. And the paper I just gave in Arizona was this, the, the latest sort of results I've done for some basic spectral analysis of some recordings, which have demonstrated that, like on uh, over water, using underwater recordings, which get a unique signature, I can get a unique sound or spectral signature for different types of rainfall using these sort of long pieces of wire stretched across the landscape. So that's a very promising result for me. Um, I've got some funding from the Arts Council in Australia to put up a little weather station next to, well I had, to, had funding from uh, Arts Council Australia to both build like a dedicated prototype system which included a weather station. So I'll be able to measure wind speed, humidity, temperature, um, and then it'll have a tipping bucket rain gauge. So every 30 minutes, I can get an update on what's called like a ground truth, gold standard, you know, current meteorologically accurate uh, amount of rain that's fallen, and relate that to the spectral profiles that I get from the, the wire itself. So it's kind of very exciting because it's in the you know it's in the it's going from the informal stage of research to a more formal stage where I'm hoping now to get involved with meteorologists and physicists rather than just just me doing it on my own. Which if you're applying for research funding as opposed to arts funding, you as an artist, I've been down that road a couple of times, and they're not the research you know the actual scientific research organizations are not interested in funding something if you're not if you don't have you know in quotes like a meteorological scientist on board with you so that's kind of the next stage for me to that's to put this weather station up and then I can say to a meteorologist look you know now I've got all this it's all built we can you know I've proven that there's definitely something there it's definitely allowing me to differentiate between different types of rainfall intensity so can we formalize this a bit more and try to develop it further you know? because at the end of the day that's the the way you build the system is very simple it's literally just two two wooden poles sunk into the ground and concrete and a piece of wire stretched across build a little piezo pickup into a recorder and then just do just do some very basic spectral analysis just just uh, you know, I think I've, I've made it into like seven frequency bands, and you monitor the the average energy in those frequency bands. Depending on the intensity of the rain, the different frequency bands will have different profiles. So the hard, harder the rain is, the more higher frequencies you'll get. For example, so you can look at the frequency content and and see immediately whether it's a very sort of hard rain or if it's just a soft rainfall. Which is obviously what you want to know if you're looking at erosion and runoff or flooding, for example. So.
just to give you a bit of background, I did classical piano for 10 years up until 1981. Um, and from about 1976, I started getting into electronics um, and building things, started building transistor radio. Um, I was getting into synthesizers because I mean, I'd always been into sound and noises and I was very interested in how all these sounds and noises that I was hearing was getting made at the same time I was doing classical piano. Um, by about 1981 I was, you know, I'd done, you know, grades in classical piano and I was kind of realising that um, I wasn't going to be a composer for piano because pretty much you know everything that can be done in twelve tone that 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 can be said has has already been said really unless you're really just making little ditties or pop tunes or whatever not that there's anything wrong with that and i and I do that as well um but I'd kind of realized that yeah you know I was gonna have to do something else um and I was realizing as well that I quite like the idea of automation because I was brought up with computing. Uh, my dad was a very early computer programmer in the late 50s, early 60s, started work on analog computers and mainframes. So I was exposed to computation and automation from from birth. Um, so I was beginning to realise that machines, automated machines, could be used to make music, as well as electronics could be used to make music. So. Um, I completely gave up the piano in um, 19, early sort of 1981 um, and then left school, got a job at, at Telecom, did an apprenticeship, started buying synthesizers, building synthesizers. Um, and it was funny because I sort of ended up starting, you know, well, not starting a band, but getting involved with with sort of synth poppy bands if you like we were all heavily influenced by you know the sort of electro pop as it was then like Depeche Mode and it's for the most popular example obviously um, but none of us had sequences we were all sort of just playing all this stuff manually and by the time you do sort of six or seven songs we were absolutely like just like this is just too much it's got to be a got to be a better way um, and that was when I started to discover sequences and they all, you know, oh, there is stuff out there you can buy, you can get these sequences and you can start um, getting sequences to play a lot of this stuff for me and I can concentrate more on what it sounds like rather than physical playing, be more into programming um, and, and moving it that way. And then I started to realise very quickly that there were, was this ocean of other stuff out there chaos theory was was just starting to come into play in the early 80s and i got got interested in that very quickly so then with the advent of home computers it was pretty much just sort of in there at the right time to be able to start experimenting a lot with these types of um, systems and, and algorithms and um, sort of later in the 80s you know it really started to sort of mid to late 80s it was a real sort of explosion in the availability of information for how to how to work with algorithms and how to you know how to work with chaos for example and what what chaos in quotes chaos mathematical chaos was in that sense and that just totally, just completely captured my imagination, really. And I just realised that 
working with algorithms, working with generative systems was was a was going to be the most fruitful approach for me to take in terms of composition and creativity. Uh, more so than than sitting there writing, trying to write notes and and write music, sheet music or, or things like that. It just seemed a natural progression for me really you know all, all of that type of thing handwriting things just seemed to me to be something from a different era you know it just seemed to be you know like we were moving you know society was moving on so why should I be sitting down you know handwriting scores or things to make music when I could just literally have a bunch of machines and just set them up and let them go and, and why worry about annotating all of the notes you know I've never annotated music either or or produced scores or anything like that I've never I've never worked that way Creative practice and complex systems, um, yeah, certainly came at directly out of that PhD work, um, and with creativity and complexity, the idea there is that rather than um, the, the the, I mean, the popular paradigm at the time when I started my PhD was that technology and science can be utilised to make art, and it was pretty much a one-way. Street. And what I wanted to demonstrate in my PhD was that it actually works both ways, and it, that's how it used to be back in the thousands of years ago when art and science were truly combined as one. You had artists, you know, who could make science, and science could make art. It was a completely two-way street. So the outcome of my PhD was to produce both a scientific output, which was to show that there's a way of working with a cellular automata rule space based on uh, something that was discovered through creative practice. Um, but I'm also making creative practice based on those scientific outcomes. Cellular automata um, are um, something I've been interested in probably now since the sort of late 80s. Um, they were originally developed by John von Neumann, the sort of the founding father of computer science and computing in general. So they're like a parallel computation architecture that were inspired by um, biological systems and the way cells interact with each other. So um, the cellular automata systems 
comprised of just very simple computational units that interact locally. So say you've got um, 200 cells, each cell would only talk to you know, itself and its immediate neighbours, say the, the sort of two or three, four, five, six, seven or eight neighbours uh, close to it, depending on the type of um, rule system that you're running. Um, and the key thing with cellular automata is that depending on the type of rule, the interaction rule between the cells, you'll get different types of behaviour, what's called the global behaviour of the system. So they can be um, produce a very ordered result, or it can be very chaotic, um, or it can be what's called a complex um, behaviour, which is the, the rarer type of behaviour is the complex behaviour. That's what all the scientists are trying to locate. Um, the rule space itself is dominated by chaotic behaviour, so it's very easy to find lots of different types of chaos, but a lot harder to find the complex uh, type of behaviour that you get from them. They can be very simple in architecture from just one-dimensional systems, which is literally a circle of cells connected together, or it can be a two-dimensional system, which are um, like a toroid, torus, because the, the edges of the, of the square or the grid are actually connected on each side, so it becomes a torus. Uh, and then you can go up into any number of dimensions you, you want. Um, the analysis of cellular automata itself is uh, incredibly difficult. So um, there's, it's very difficult to, um, to formally, in mathematical formalism, to, to analyse them. That's part of the big um, sort of research area, which is what I did part of my PhD in, was, was looking at a particular area of cellular automata, which is called the rule space, which is the collection of all the different possible types of rules that create all these different types of behaviour, and how is that rule space organised? So that's like one of the, the big problems in, in cellular automata. So how do you find these complex rules uh, and differentiate them from the chaotic rules? So that was something that my PhD looked at as well as how they're mapped to musical output as well. One of the early applications was actually medical image processing in the 1960s uh, and there was like a whole area of research that appeared in the, in the 60s just custom building these parallel computer architectures to, to do like digital image analysis on, on quite large mainframes. Um, since then there's been a whole sort of array of, of areas of application for cellular automata of which I, you know, I'd only know a small part of that. Um, really they're, 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 they're a sort of you know, a model for complexification itself so the way you, you apply these systems to sort of real world problems is again like when you apply them to music can be can be quite arbitrary from looking at things like um, traffic flow for example or 
Um, one that was quite popular in Australia that the CSIRO looked at was modelling um, bushfire behaviour over, um, you know, take a terrain and convert it to a gridded area and then they'd come up with a uh, selection of different cellular automata algorithms to model the way fire spreads throughout a, you know, throughout a particular area. Um, another popular one was per, a guy called Per Back who did the sand pile analysis, which which was quite sort of one of the early uh, popularizations of cellular autonomous apart from obviously Conway's life. Um, so the sand pile model that Per Back created was he had a real world model of a sand pile with um, just sort of, sort of funnel that was dropping sand like one grain at a time and the sand pile builds up and then it reaches what's called a self-organised criticality which means it reaches a certain point in the system and then the system basically just stays in that state but just sort of moves around and you get these little tiny avalanches of sand coming across the sides of the sand pile but they're all, they obey a particular... Um, particular law for how how big these avalanches are so if, so for every avalanche that's that's really large you get a certain number of smaller avalanches um, and per back then used a cellular automata to 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 model that um, for cellular automata it's the idea that you can use very simple computational models to 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 look at trying to understand a variety of different real world problems uh, in, in, in the whole sort of host of domains. That was just a, an example of, of, a, of a couple. Another popular one was computational fluid dynamics where you're modelling um, different three-dimensional and two-dimensional behaviours of uh, different types of fluids and how they can interact with other different types of structures and cellular automata were quite popular for, for looking at those. Um, so that's just a few. And, oh, well, another one was... Um, while well, I remember, is modelling um, viruses and DNA data as well were very popular for cellular automata. For cellular automata, there are different ways of um, both visualising them and, and studying them. Um, the simplest way is is visualising them as um, just a, gr a grid of cells, either in one dimension as a line, which usually that would be... You can see the time history with a one-dimensional system, so you'd you'd have it as a as a line starting at the bottom of a screen, for example, and moving upwards, or the top of the screen, moving downwards. Um, and for two-dimensional systems, you can see them as a grid of cells, which is the sort of the popular uh, way of, of viewing them. Obviously, not all systems are two-dimensional. Um, 
There are other ways of looking at them. In particular, in my PhD, I was working with what are called attractor basins. So the way you visualize cellular automata that way is you look at the global behavior in its entirety and you look at what are called um, basins of attraction, which are state transition graphs for all of the different states of the system. So you're actually, rather than showing what's happening temporally, you're showing like a complete map of all of the states of the system in one go on the screen. Um, and it literally looks like lots of, a bunch of lots of different types of graphs in that way. So you're not even looking at them as, as grids or anything like that. Um, an another way of looking at them is something called De Bruyne diagrams, which are like a, a, a mathematical formalism which looks at the way different states uh, transition to other states. And that's quite a sort of a heavy mathematical um, way of looking at them. Um, and then quite a lot of papers literally don't even have any pictures in at all. It's just literally just a pages and pages of, of maths, usually um, m mathematical logic. Um, so that can be quite impenetrable for anybody who's not f familiar with maths. Um, in terms of then moving from that to something like music or visual art, it's it's really quite arbitrary the way you can you can then um, map these systems into some sort of generative art in some way. Um, for myself, generally, I, I I did look briefly at doing different visualizations of of cellular automata systems, but I tend to, I, pretty much when I started my PhD, I, I gave up trying to portray them visually in different ways and had to focus on, um, you know, just, just using them for music. So in the musical domain, I suppose you could say, the two main areas are, are you using the system to make control information? So that would be like, control voltages and gates for a modular synthesizer or MIDI information, um, uh, you know, for, for a MIDI synthesizer or a sequencer or something like that. Uh, and for sound, um, there are a number of different ways you can, for example, treat it as a square wave for a binary system because you've just got zeros and ones in the grid. So you could look at that as a, you could take a particular cell and just use that as a square wave output, or you could take a, uh, an amalgamation of cells and use that through a D2A converter. So say you could take eight cells to give you an 8-bit sound output if it's binary, for example. I mean, a lot of these systems are also multi-state, what are called multi-state systems. But again, the analysis to go from binary to multi-state systems that say have four states or eight states or or 60 states or however many states just becomes astronomically complicated. Um, for binary systems, the, 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 a lot of the problems have been proven to be unsolvable. The, the, the subject I did my PhD on about the rule space has also been, was before I even started it, was, was a, known to be an uns, unsolvable or uncomputable problem. So what, what, what we're really doing is looking at getting insights into these systems through coming up with different ways to look at that particular unsolvable problem. So you're not necessarily saying that you've solved that problem because it's been shown to be unsolvable, but you can get insights from um, looking at different, you know, different approaches to it, particularly in my case, which was um, looking at the problem from an, uh, an artist's point of view rather than a mathematician's point of view. So I came up with a different way of 
looking at the rules-based problem uh, in that sense. quite a lot of of work done in in the area now when I first started looking at it there wasn't really much at all and I wasn't familiar with any when I first started looking at it because I was just doing it independently um, and not through a university so I didn't really have any access to um, to sort of research journals to find out what other people were doing it was kind of before the age of the internet as well so I was pretty much working on my own initially um, and then as I as I started working with it I found out about some other areas um, I think the, the sort of first person I became familiar with was a guy called Eduardo Miranda who's uh, Brazilian I believe and I did a paper with him when I started with my PhD um, he was particularly interested in looking at Conway's life um, and how you could map structures in Conway's life to um, various aspects of um, chordal structures in, in music. Um, you know, d different types of mappings based on groups of cells to produce multiple notes at the same time. Um, and then Eduardo also did something called ca Chaos Synth, which was a cellular automata synth synthesizer program that I think he initially did on, on a mainframe, Silicon Graphics mainframe. Um, that was very computationally intensive because it obviously runs a lot faster than, than a sequencer because you're producing it on a sample by sample basis rather than a, an event basis. So you've got a lot more data and processing to do when you're, when you're sort of producing sound. Um, so he was the first person I got into. And then there was another chap called Dale Millen who's over in the States and he produced a little cellular automata sequencer, a two-dimensional sequencer. Um, another guy was a chap called Peter Bales who was looking at um, the aesthetics of cellular automata. Um, bunch of others. I, wrote, I did a, a review paper actually for my PhD on all the different people who'd, as you know, the initial part of my PhD, you have to sort of do a review of who else has worked in the field and differentiate your work from, from other people's work. Um, and it seemed to me the majority of people were working in um, like event-based sequencing and a little bit in um, you know, sample-based or audio, you know, audio synthesis. Um, and that was, it seemed to me, purely because up until the last few years, it's been a lot harder to do, to, to get the computational resources to work with sound synthesis with cellular automata as opposed to an event-based system. I mean, even even today, with with, you know, modern computers that you can get quite easily, it's still 
very difficult to work with solar automata just because the amount of computational power you need to to look at um, complex systems you need quite a large number of cells in order for complexity to emerge so for example if you just took say a 16 or a 32 cell system you wouldn't get complex behavior for it because the system itself isn't big enough so you need like 150 250 cells or more and as soon as you every time you add another cell to just a single cell to the system the processing power is going up and up and up each time and it, just, it soon gets out of control very quickly so so historically it's, it's actually been quite difficult to work with these systems purely because of the you know the computational requirements for the systems themselves so um, on the visual side, for example, I'm not too familiar with, with what's been done in, in terms of visual art, apart from some of the stuff that I've worked with myself. Um, so I couldn't really talk too much about, about the, the visual art side of it with, it, with, it, with, any, <laughs> with any authority, really.